<laughs> so fair warning, Val and I have known each other since we were 12 and have been <laughs> friends for a long time too. So it's some good natured teasing that happens every now and then. I'm Todd Lyons. I'm Natalie Crandall. I'm Valeria Sosa. I'm Scott McNaughton. And this is the Innovate on Demand podcast. Whether you're a citizen or a business, wading through policy, regulation, and legislation can be difficult. How can a human being navigate thousands of words written in complex formal and legal vocabulary? Well, increasingly we're trying to delegate that difficult work to a helper better suited to the task. Software. By converting rules into code, we can concentrate instead on asking AI to provide us with details pertaining to our situation, such as eligibility, benefits, obligations, and restrictions. Welcome, Scott. How you doing? <laughs> um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, so I'm working on what's known as the regulatory demonstrator projects. And uh, these are projects that are supposed to show federal regulators the possibilities of new and emerging technologies. So things like AI, blockchain and rules as code. Uh, I'm going to go off the assumption that most people know what artificial intelligence is, most people know what blockchain is, but maybe not rules as code. Uh, so rules as code is a relatively new concept for government. It's the process of taking your rules, whether they're regulations, standards, or policies, and converting them into machine-readable code. Um, and when we do that and we release that as open source code and as an application protocol interface or an API, uh, we can build applications and services that let regulated companies understand what their requirements are to be compliant, or we can, uh, to some level, automate decision making when it comes to licenses, permits, and certificates. Because your rules, at the end of the day, are a lot of if-then statements. And, th and that's quite the oversimplification of it. But if you do something, then you get a penalty. Or if you are this kind of person, then you're eligible for this benefit. And that's what a computer understands, a lot of if-then statements. So if we can turn our rules into that, then we enable a whole new world of possibility of delivering better regulatory service, ensuring better regulatory compliance, and potentially, you know, really pushing government into the digital era in all senses of the word. So you guys have had some uh, big successes and some big wins on your project recently. Let's uh, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and about what you've created. Yeah. So we have a portfolio of projects right now. One of them is the Incorporation by Reference project. And for those who aren't familiar, Incorporation by Reference is a technique commonly used by regulators to refer to other documents within their regulation. And those other documents are not necessarily Government of Canada documents. They could be published by standards organizations or other bodies uh, out there in the world. And the Department of Justice was asked by the Joint Committee on the Scrutiny of Regulations, how often is incorporation by reference used in your regulations and how accessible are your regulations to the general public and to businesses more specifically? Of course, like many things in government, we don't have the answer to a question like that. Nobody's tracking this information and nobody thought to track this information. Um, and based on the regulatory stock in Canada of 3,000 plus regulations, 
Uh, we estimated that it would take a paralegal, poor paralegal, I would not want to be that person, uh, 1,300 hours a year to actually collect and gather this information. So to review each regulation, identify an incorporation by reference, go to the relevant document and collect information like language of availability, cost, when it was last updated. So not a very fun job and not one that I would wish upon my worst enemy. But with that being said, artificial intelligence and automation represent an opportunity to take that very mundane, painful task and do it much faster. It doesn't replace the human judgment that's needed to assess the data collection, but it does make a very thankless and painful job much quicker and much easier. The problem we're trying to solve with that particular project is to give that answer to Parliament to say, well, you know, how many of those documents we're referencing in our regulations are only available in English and not French? How many are behind paywalls of a couple thousand dollars? And what does that mean for our regulations? What does that mean for, let's say, the rural Quebec farmer uh, who is trying to be compliant, doing everything in their power to be compliant? But the standard we reference is only available in English. And so they can't be fully compliant. And and what are the repercussions of that? And, and that's a very open-ended question that nobody has the answer to right now. And we'd prefer not to find out. We'd prefer to get on top of this issue before it becomes a, a, a full-blown legal issue. The second project we're working on is the Regulatory Evaluation Platform Project. So Treasury Board Secretariat, as part of its regulatory review process, has asked regulators to do, quote unquote, periodic uh, reviews of their regulatory stock, uh, which is defined as doing things like checking which regulations can be modernized, doing comparisons between Canadian regulations and regulations from other jurisdictions, and being able to uh, do what's known as like a, an analysis of conflict or overlap. So by that, I mean, is a regulation at the federal level, does it have a requirement that conflicts with something at the provincial or territorial level? Now, a lot of this is supposed to uh, be done within existing resources. Regulators are already strapped and don't have the time to do this. And again, another opportunity was realized, could we use artificial intelligence to make this task more bearable, to actually get some tangible uh, analysis done and tangible results that will give us a better picture of uh, what opportunities are there to modernize our regulations, to harmonize our regulations, and to do overall regulatory analysis more e efficiently and effectively. So where are you with that? Uh, so with that particular project, the Regulatory Evaluation Platform project, uh, we were the first requirement to go through the AI source list that was published by uh, PSPC and TBS. Uh, we have awarded con two contracts to two different firms, and uh, they are building us two separate prototypes, and we will be evaluating those prototypes. And the one that we like more, based on completely objective criteria, uh, we will award a contract to that firm to take that prototype into production for us. And this has been a very interesting procurement process that we've undertaken for this project. 
first of all, using the source list is a new experience in itself. Uh, we we followed a very agile procurement process with lots of vendor engagement, lots of tweaks to the statement of work and the evaluation grid in response to that feedback. Uh, we're running multiple vendors in competition with each other to build us prototypes so that we're not locked down to a single vendor. Almost who, like a challenge. It is. It is. A, it is like a challenge. And the thing is, the way the contract's been structured, it, it has a lot of option periods too. So if we don't like any of the prototypes, we don't have to award a contract to move into production. After we move it into production, there are option periods to do additional development if we want to. So if we realize that what we've put out to production is not quite up to snuff, well, then we have option periods built on the contract to do more enhancements and more work on it. So we've in a sense, future-proofed it that way. So a complex and intense procurement process might actually still be faster than that poor paralegal. Yes. Doing the work. <laughs> going through a competitive... I think that makes this really valuable work. <laughs> uh, going through a complex uh, RFP process, yes, would still be faster than the paralegal. But what we have learned through that procurement process is there's still a lot of room for improvement in that procurement process. Uh, there's a lot of procedural problems we've run into uh, around how people bid and what happens when vendors drop out of the process. Uh, we've learned a lot about uh, how to craft an ideal statement of work, uh, especially in a field like AI, where it's very new to government. You don't have baselines for how long and how much this stuff should cost. Uh, and a lot of the criteria that you're using to evaluate the bidders are very subjective uh, and are hard to uh, evaluate at an objective level. And so to give you a practical example, I might be able to say that I want uh, I want you know experience on the team with completing an AI project. And to meet that criteria, You'd literally just have to write on a piece of paper, this team member completed an AI project. And I would have no way of verifying that uh, because our procurement processes are not built in such a way. Um, they're built in a, in a way to make sure it's fair, it's transparent, uh, and that everybody has an equal opportunity to bid on every single thing that government puts out for bidding. But it's like from, our job process. Exactly. <laughs> but from the point of view of the person who just wants good to get done, uh, and I don't really care who does it as long as I get what I need and it's done really well, especially in a field that's really new and emerging like AI, I can't objectively tell you what is good, what is better, what is best, what is bad, what is average. Mm -hmm. Because I, I don't necessarily know because I'm bringing you in to do something that's never been done before. I don't have 20 years of history to draw upon like I would for an application. So if you tell me your technical approach to something is the best way to do it, I don't really have a way of disputing that because I can't put objective criteria of what a good technical architecture is for an AI project in government because I don't have much history to base that off of. And how has procurement been throughout this process? So a shout out to anybody from PSPC that is listening to this. PSPC has been amazing. They have been providing unparalleled service. They've been very open to us 
trying some crazy things uh, with this RFP. That Crazy things? Yes. <laughs> You've got to expand on that very greatly. Okay, so crazy things. Uh, I'll use intellectual property as an example. So uh, you may or may not be familiar with the Directive on Automated Decision Making as well as the uh, Impact Assessment for Algorithms. Uh, so these are new Treasury Board requirements for automated decision-making systems. They're not in force until April 2020, but as a matter of best practice, we said, let's pretend they're in force anyway. Right. Um, and so when you uh, when you initially dream up an AI project, you're supposed to go through an assessment of the relative level of risk that your AI system will have, um, accounting for things like eth ethical approach to AI, bias in your algorithm and your training data, so on and so forth. Things I think most people are familiar with. But with that being said, uh, we rate it as a level one. There aren't too many requirements under level one. So uh, Neil Bauer, our VP here at the school, said, let's pretend we're a level two and let's subject ourselves to more requirements than we have to. After having sharing a look with my director of like, okay, I guess we just have more work to do now. We said, sure, let's do it as a, as a thought exercise. And if it doesn't work out, you know, what's the big deal? We're the school, nobody's going to die. It's an AI system that's not making decisions. It's pretty low risk. It's safe. So let's try it anyway. And so what we ended up with is we said, okay, we have to build some elements into the contract to account for this. And one of them was around intellectual property. And specifically, you need the ability to do what's known as a peer review. And that would include looking at the source code, looking at the software components, hardware components, basically every single piece of how your AI was built and how it's running. Mm -hmm. But typically, your intellectual property provisions in a contract say that the intellectual property stays with whoever you're contracting out to. Well, that creates an interesting problem that right. I might have to go look at that to do a peer review, not to mention because of the regulatory application, I may find myself in court someday. Yeah. Uh, and somebody may be saying, oh, you use the regulatory evaluation platform to make this decision in addition to databases, applications, and program files? Well, I want to see that system. I want to see how that system influenced your decision-making. And that may one day come up in court. So I need some way of going into the intellectual property of a contractor on a moment's notice and not have to fight a big battle to get there. So I came up with a clause that gave the Crown perpetual lifetime access to all the source code and all the components. So Are you forever. Tell us that clause? Well, that's basically what the clause was was a, <laughs> direct. I like yeah, it. A perpetual lifetime uh, license to access all of the components of the solution whenever we made a request to do so. And it gave a few examples like a court case, a tribunal just because we felt like it. It didn't actually say that in those exact terms, but that's basically what it equated to. And we, well, we expected pushback. We didn't expect pushback from PSPC, but they were very open to it. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't say, well, we don't do that on RFPs. Like we, we could never do that. They said, oh, okay, we understand what you're trying to do. And we understand why you're trying to do it. Let's find a way to make it work. 
and when PSPC is an enabler is when things go really smoothly. And, and that's where they uh, offer the most value. And so they brought it back to their lawyers. They brought it back to their managers and their procurement experts, massage the wording a little bit. And then we presented it to all the vendors. And I expected them to flip a few tables and say, you're crazy. I'm never bidding on this. You're essentially giving a free pass for my competitors to see all my IP. And what ended up happening is the vendors understood. They understood that AI is under incredible scrutiny right now. There's still a lot of uh, mistrust and that if the government is to build legitimacy and credibility as it introduces AI systems, that we have to be able to audit the systems that we're putting in place, that we have to we have to be transparent about how these systems are making decisions, how they're being built, uh, especially when you apply the ethical AI and the bias reduction lenses, uh, not to mention, you know, the numerous other lenses that could be applied, because you don't want a system that unfairly favors a certain group of people because the training data used, I don't know, let's say favored uh, white males. And so, you know, uh, your system as a result prioritizes white male applications. Uh, that's not the kind of system that we should be building. Um, and, and I think the companies understood that and that's why they were very open to that provision. That's great. And I love uh, your line about when, when PSPC is an enabler. It's great. And um, I feel like that message needs to be communicated. <laughs> how much we love <laughs> how much we love PSPC <laughs> in the role of an enabler. <laughs> yeah, and 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 through this process, you know, uh, there there have been other requirements that have come through the the source list that PSPC and TBS created, and those departments have reached out to me to ask for advice. And some of the advice that I impart on them, I've already talked about uh, during the podcast, but some other pieces of advice that especially what I'm seeing through this procurement process uh, and, and what we encountered while we were looking through the bids is uh, a very uh, distinct lack of expertise when it comes to new and emerging technologies. And I'm sure this won't be a new theme, uh, but what we saw was we would get these flashy vendor bids, um, you know, and some of the firms have entire teams just dedicated to writing government bids so they could do a really good job. But then you would see a technical architecture diagram. You would see, oh, we're going to use Elasticsearch and we're going to build it using this data science method and blah, blah, blah. And we compiled a group of subject matter experts, regulators in this case, well, they sound like they know what they're talking about. I guess it's good, right? Like, I don't really have a way of saying whether it's good or not. And we did have one AI expert who participated in the evaluation panel from Digital Academy. But of course, the rules of procurement say that people in the evaluation panel are not allowed to talk to each other until you do your consensus meeting. And so they had questions, but they had nobody to go to. And even so, even if there was an AI expert somewhere out there that was in ready access for them, you're not supposed to discuss the contents of a bid with, with anyone until you come to your consensus panel. And the contents of the evaluation bid are not supposed to be shared with anyone outside of the panel. So 
we've created this interesting procurement system that I would argue is not ready for the digital era, especially if we're trying to encourage government to go and adopt all of these cutting edge things, but we're not equipping public servants and we're not creating processes that can work to support you know, the adoption of new and emerging technologies. And the, the example I gave with not being able to access AI expertise because of dated procurement rules that don't let us discuss the bids, that don't let us consult with people outside of the panel, that don't let us talk amongst each other until we come to a consensus meeting. It's fine and dandy when it's, you know, the 46th research project that you've been, you know, doing out to RFP because you do one every two or three years. And so this is like, you could do it on muscle memory. But then when it comes to something you've never done before, that inability to go and get expertise when you need it makes the process incredibly difficult. I have to say it also happened recently um, and in one of the projects that I was working on, we were looking for a behavioral scientist and that's also kind of new to government. And it just happened that I have a background in psychology and done some work in, in conflict. So I was able to read through the lines of these proposals. But what amazed me throughout this process, what I learned is that there wasn't somebody from the procurement aspect or that they didn't necessarily have an expert in that that was able to evaluate these things from that level. And what if I hadn't been there? What if it was just, a, you know, uh, people who didn't necessarily have that little, little bit of added knowledge, then yeah, it does sound great. But it's not, you have to be able to read between the lines to really see and evaluate properly. So yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely, absolutely. And that that is very, that resonates with me a lot based on our experience of doing the procurement uh, for, for the regulatory evaluation platform project. Uh, and we noticed the same thing when we were developing the statement of work. Uh, procurement understand process and they understand policy and they understand the rules. But when it comes time to, well, how do I frame my criteria so that I can uh, objectively evaluate some new requirement with a with a technology that barely anybody's familiar with they can't really help you that much because they're they're often operating on a similar level of knowledge that you are if you have a procurement question like how the process is going to work or how a criteria you've drafted will line up with procurement rules they're going to be incredibly helpful but if you say to them I need the system to do X, Y, Z. How can I phrase this in a way that it becomes objective? How can I define, you know, good, better, best? They're not going to be too much help. And what I fear is uh, we'll have a lot of explorers and we'll have a lot of experimenters who will definitely be moving forward on the adoption curve, but they will not they will not be able to get good results without having the supporting capacity and infrastructure. What I also found was explaining reasons why, why this is, why this does not match. It was an interesting process in that as well, because they, they wanted more clarification than I was able to give because I'm like, I, I don't know how to tell you otherwise, like how I'm telling you why you're not quite understanding what the difference is um, other than 
showing you definitions on the web of why this is this and this is this, which I attempted to do, um, which make it very clear the explanation that I'm trying to give you. I don't know how else to communicate why I'm saying, no, this does not match. So I felt that, that there was a communication barrier there as well. And I felt if they had been able to bring in that expertise almost from their end, um, some familiarity with the topic, it would have helped greatly. Um, in that process. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and, and what we've also started to learn as we go through uh, actual project execution as well, and this is a very common characteristic for any project, is trying to avoid scope creep. Trying to not boil the ocean and keep yourself very focused. And we've had to many, many different times reflect back on what the original problem we were trying to solve was. Because AI is very uh, smoke and mirrors to a lot of people. It's very, uh, you know, when they, when they, when you ask somebody to visualize what an AI system actually looks like, what is their interaction with it? It's very hard for them to do that. It's very nebulous. They, they can't really give you a good picture. You know, it's not like you necessarily go on to an application and start interacting with an AI. The AI interaction may be invisible and under the hood. You may not even realize it's happening. So it's hard for people to visualize that. And so once they start to see the results, they start to imagine, if it can visualize my data on a click of a button, what else can it do? Can it also give me more data points? Can it visualize it in 10 different ways? And before you know it, sco scope creep is starting to come up. And what we perceive as you know, uh, non-technical experts as a very simple task, like, oh, couldn't you just ingest an entire new data set into your existing algorithm? Like all you have to do is just hit a button to ingest it, right? is actually a very complicated task. You know, there's some assumptions built in that it's just going to be the data set is ready, it's machine readable, I hit a button, it goes into the algorithm and everything sorts itself out. And the reality is that's not how it happens. And so if we go back to uh, what I think is an essential project management practice of what was the problem we are trying to solve and where we are in our project, whether it's a prototype, whether it's, you know, a production ready solution, does it actually solve our problem? Because everything else is just distractions and noise. If we can't say that it solved our fundamental problem, then why did we even bother doing it in the first place? Right? And it's very easy to get distracted by the shiny new features that everybody wants as they start realizing that this could be this, you know, the thing that solves all their problems. But going back to that fundamental question, does it solve everything? Does it solve our problem? Does it fix whatever issues we were running into that prompted us to start this adventure in the first place? If yes, great, project success. If not, why not? And what can we do to, to ground ourselves back into the original problem space? So let me ask you, what would, for you, at the end of the project, what does the end of the project look like with a big Bo, you dropping a mic and being like, I can move on now. This is this is a great <laughs> success. I am so proud of myself. What does that look like? He's never hiring a paralegal to do those 1,300 <laughs> hours of work. <laughs> uh, so what does success look like? What does my mic drop moment look like? I would say that um, we've always framed this as an experiment. So this is 
more than just producing a solution. Because the number one question I'm always asked is, why is this happening at the school? And it is a very good question to ask. I was asking. (laughs) And so, yes, we are producing something of value that will increase productivity and efficiency and, uh, you know, pat ourselves on the back and everybody's happy about that. But at the end of the day, as the school, we care about building capacity. We care about the learning benefits from something like this. And so that's why we frame it as an experiment that everybody who's come along for the journey started thinking AI is Skynet. It's going to take over the world. It's going to be, you know, the, uh, you know, the robots are going to take over the world. I, for one, welcome our robot overlords if they're listening. And, (laughs) (laughs) and that's how every, that's where everybody started. But as they've gone on this journey with us, they're now in a position where they understand more about what AI is capable of and just as importantly, what it's not capable of. They understand its limitations. They understand more about data science. And as regulators, they're better equipped to be 21st century regulators. A regulator who hears that their industry is adopting AI now understands what that means, what its possible implications are, and how they as a regulator should respond to that. So should they regulate? Should they monitor? Should they do more research? Should they ask to be a part of that project? They now are equipped to make that determination because they understand the technology that the industries that they're regulating are adopting. And so they become better regulators. So what does this mean in terms of what does project success look like? I would argue that It'll be great if we get something that can start being adopted into uh, the practice of the regulators. At the same time, though, I want to create something that creates an experience where the regulators coming out of this project say, I understand more about AI. I understand about how I can be a better regulator as a result of how the world is changing. And I've also been inspired to think about how I can change the way I do business and adopt AI. And ideally, too, build upon the results of the experiment the school has been doing. Maybe I look at the incorporation by reference project. Maybe I look at the regulatory evaluation platform project and say, to meet my needs, that's 80% of the way there. But I want to adopt it into my own practice to take it the remaining 20% trying to be everything for everyone. And we have 16 federal departments and agencies who are partners in this project. I wow. won't name them all because that will take a few minutes in itself. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, well, it could be. <laughs> uh, but with that being said, like we have 16 partners and we're not going to make a product that will meet everybody's needs because that is impossible. Um, We will not be able to create the one platform to rule them all. But what we can create is something that makes the status quo better and something that can be built upon if the departments want to. They have the source code. They have the knowledge and understanding and capacity. They have the connections to AI experts. And then just give them an encouraging push to take it the rest of the way. Well, I think having 16 um, investing partners is a real testament to the quality of the work that you're doing because those things don't just happen (laughs) on crappy projects. Yeah, and an interesting story about how that all came together. So uh, over the summer, a period of a month and a half, 
uh, we reached out to uh, 18 departments and agencies, uh, all in rapid succession, signing MOUs, and uh, we fundraised about $1.1 million in about a month and a half. Wow. Do you feel like calling out the two who didn't invest? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't name you don't. missed out. <laughs> I, I won't name the guilty parties. That was they just know a who joke. <laughs> And so I, I just want to jump a little bit to rules as code because I don't think I've given it enough time or justice. <laughs> <laughs> so rules as code is a very interesting What's concept. That? <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of justice, the Department of Justice uh, is a key partner in this, and so is Transport Canada. And we have an active project. Uh, so the Department of Justice, Transport Canada, and the Community of Federal Regulators where we're working on trying to convert the large commercial vessel registry rules into machine-readable code. An owner of a vessel, whether it's a company or an individual, would understand how to register their vessel depending on its size, depending on its purpose, and what are the required documents and provisions and rules around that. And what's interesting about this space is we are in a state right now where we're going to try to convert existing rules. And there's a very interesting and emerging conversation, especially in Canada, where we already have uh, a system where we draft our regulations in two languages, English and French, of potentially one day, uh, and I don't want to scare off any Department of Justice listeners, one day introducing a third language, drafting it in code. And then converting it into English and French. So if we want a, a digital first government, a government that prioritizes and recognizes the importance of digital in today's world, then we would take uh, into serious consideration whether when we're drafting our regulations, should we draft it in code first? And should we primarily consider a digital use case as the primary driver for drafting our regulations. And, and it opens up a lot of interesting mm -hmm. constitutional questions, which I think mm -hmm. is outside the scope of this podcast. Uh, but we have drafting conventions in place already. And so if we introduce a third language code, uh, what will that mean for our drafting conventions? What will that mean for how uh, you know, lawyers, policy experts, drafters all come into a room and and try to figure out uh, how they're going to draft rules uh, so that uh, they're ready to be put into code uh, as soon as those rules come into effect. Interesting. What's uh, what's the instinct on that? Or the in I guess the reaction that you get. So the reaction I get is. Uh, depending on who you're talking about. Some people are very excited about that. Digital and innovation-minded people tend to get very excited about that. People in the legal profession uh, tend to react with a little bit of, that's interesting, but that also terrifies me. Um, <laughs> so it really depends on who you're talking about. But the future that you could create uh, is, you know, like there. there's so many interesting futures that you could create by doing this. And the one that I always like to get back to, and I'm going to give two examples. The first is if you imagine that you could do, you convert your rules into machine readable format and you start doing advanced 
data scenarios. So if I were to, because uh, Stats Canada data is already largely machine readable, and we have all of our rules, which are now machine readable, uh, and, and converted into data itself, if I tweak a variable in my regulations, what is going to be the impact to GDP or to productivity or to population growth or to immigration rates or to whatever data point I care about? So if I say, okay, uh, the threshold for inspection is currently set to, let's say, 10% of whatever variable, and I'm going to tweak the regulation so it's 15% of that same variable, and then I run an advanced scenario using real life data, and I just run a simulation. And I say, okay, so what's the impact? Oh, look at that. The number of airplanes falling out of the sky has gone up by 5%. Ooh, well, I better not make that tweak then because I don't think the cost of life is worth whatever administrative burden reduction I'm giving to business. We appreciate that decision. <laughs> so that's the kind of advanced scenarios that we could do. And there's some research uh, out of the University of Ottawa uh, from Wolfgang Alsner, um, where he has done something very similar, but with trade agreements hmm. and where he has using the text of existing trade agreements and converting them into machine readable code can actually predict whether a trade agreement is going to be successful or not purely based on the text of the trade agreement huh. and based on other secondary data sources that have been inputted into the algorithm. So if we can convert our rules into machine readable code, we open up a lot of possibilities for advanced data analytics, advanced scenario planning. The sky's the limit. It's just a question of whether we take the time to do it or not. Uh, it's not going to work on every single rule set. I can already hear people telling me, well, that will work great for a prescriptive uh, rule where the rules are very clear that you must do this, uh, but in more outcome-based uh, rules where it's like, as long as you're not killing anybody, I don't really care how you achieve that outcome. Yes, I, and I'm the first to admit it's not going to work for every single rule that we have in Canada, but there are a large number of them where it will work, especially the more prescriptive ones. I, I don't expect people to be ready to go full-scale adoption on day one, but I think we have a duty to experiment with it, see if we can realize the benefits that are promised. And, and you know, people in Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, the UK, France have already started doing this. So let's experiment with it. Let's see what happens. Let's see what kind of benefits we can realize. And then let's make a judgment call on whether it's worth our time or not. But I think that's a very modest proposal that I don't think is too controversial. I'm not going to say let's go and invest, you know, $10 million to go convert 200 rules right off the bat. I understand that, especially with how early this is, it needs to prove itself out first. And it's it's very interesting. Uh, I'll just give a, a shout out to some of the other work we're doing. So we're doing some forward planning right now. Um, and we're looking to see uh, for future project ideas like uh, using artificial intelligence to find missing federally regulated companies, which sounds a little bit odd. And I saw some eyebrows shoot up. I'll explain it really quickly. Uh, essentially, uh, I won't name the guilty parties, but some departments uh, do not know everybody who falls under their jurisdiction. 
And sometimes it's out of pure ignorance. Uh, companies just don't know they're federally regulated. Other times it's just uh, poor record keeping, uh, whatever the reason is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so how can we find those companies? Now, we could do a massive manual effort of Google searches, program files, keywords, and eventually piece together. Uh, but one particular department who shall go unnamed has estimated that they're missing about 1,500 companies. And so they did a, a manual effort to try to identify some of them. And in about six months, they identified 300 companies. And, you know, companies are being created. Companies are going out of business every single day. So tr truthfully, I don't think you'll ever get on top of it. Plus, real realistically, who has the staff to dedicate to this 37.5 hours a week for, I, I can't do the math off the top of my head, but years. Uh, so this is a, a chance for uh, artificial intelligence to help us out. If we know what the variables are that might indicate a company's federally regulated, and we have a database of the companies who are registered, it's simply just matching up the companies we find based on criteria against who's on the list and just doing a crosswalk between them. Uh, so it's not exactly uh, you know the most complicated thing to piece together, but it is very time consuming. Uh, we're also looking into uh, whether we can link. Uh, so Stats Canada has something known as the linked file environment. Uh, where they keep business registry data, CRA tax data. And we're looking into whether we can link that with regulatory data, like licenses, permits, and certificates, so that we can create a more fulsome profile of a company's regulatory status, combine that with something like rules as code, and now you have a very powerful uh, engine for businesses to use to see if they are compliant with all the requirements of our rules. Um, and, and when we link that with the licensing permit and certificate data, your rules are in machine-readable format, your company's profiles are in machine-readable format. With a click of a button, I can tell you what requirements you're subject to and which of the licenses and permits and certificates that you're supposed to have that you actually have and which ones you're missing. And as long as I don't use that information for enforcement purposes, as long as I use that as more of a, you know, an infotainment, if you will, uh, service so that people know what they have to do to be compliant, uh, then it's fine from a privacy point of view. I feel like your tagline should be AI for common sense service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe we can uh, look into making us a logo and have some branding and a tagline, get some ads up maybe on, well, maybe not Facebook these days, but I don't know, Twitter, get some Twitter ads going. Yeah. That's usually where all the government uh, digital innovation people are hanging out, so... Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, thank, thank you, you for having me today. You've been listening to Innovate On Demand, brought to you by the Canada School of Public Service. Our music is by Grapes. I'm Todd Lyons, producer of this series. Thank you for listening. Thank you.